0: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Emily Ye about her recent book, Taming Tibet, Landscape Transformation and the Gift of Chinese Development. This came out with Cornell University Press in 2013, and it's a fabulous book. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Um, You can... I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Emily Ye about her recent book, Taming Tibet Landscape Transformation and the Gift of Chinese Development. This came out with Cornell University Press in 2013, and it's a fabulous book. And you don't have to just take my word for it, um, you can take the word of multiple awards committees that have been lauding the book recently. It's gotten a lot of attention. Um, it, in recognition of the contributions that it's making to multiple fields. So it's well worth the time spent reading it. So this is a book that takes us into the context of 20th and 21st century China since 1950, um, when a process of territorialization, okay, of incorporating Tibet into the body of the state was happening and was sort of intensifying as a result of three projects that can be loosely subsumed under the rubric of state development. Um, so the three parts of the book take us into successively the 1950s through the 1980s, um, where we see an introduction of state farms and a kind of labor um, that goes into these farms that's producing what Emily's calling a new socialist landscape by working the soil. Then there's a second stage, which looks at the 1990s in a context where lots and lots of Han Chinese migrants are moving to the area and are taking up, among other things, vegetable cultivation. And so um, in this part of the book, we're able to see the relationship between Han Chinese migrants and Tibetans and the ways that this is also transforming not just forms of space and spatiality, but also forms of subjecthood. And then there's a third part of the book that looks at the expansion of the built environment and housing projects in particular in the 2000s and sort of looked at this as a new round of or a new stage of development and landscape transformation. And it looks specifically at the notion of the gift as a way to get at that. So over the course of these chapters, there are also um, lots of really fabulous interludes that are moments Um, that are taken from Emily's experience working for, you know, almost a decade or more than a decade on her ethnographic fieldwork that bring us into celebrations, into contexts of fear. Um, They show us jokes. Um, They take us into lots of different kinds of contexts that round out um, our understanding of the way that everyday life is proceeding in these these conditions um, and remind us that a lot of the kinds of, Um, really powerful experiences of fear, experiences of joy, experiences of being given something and having things taken away are happening at the same time. So it's a great book. Um, I will leave you to the conversation and thank you very much for listening. And also I'll apologize. You'll hear some ambient gardening noise in the background probably. Um, this is happening right outside of my home. It's an unavoidable um, today, unfortunately. So I apologize for the weed whacking, the whacking and the weeding that's happening behind me. Um, and thank you for persevering despite that. And thank you also for listening. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Emily Yeh about her recent book, Taming Tibet. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Emily, and thanks for writing both an awesome book and also for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it, and welcome to the channel.
1: Thank you, and yeah, I really appreciate your time and effort on this. It's my pleasure.
0: So Emily, could you start us off as is kind of traditional for the channel by just saying a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically what brought you to work on Tibet?
1: Yeah, I have a pretty um, convoluted uh, sort of trajectory. I actually studied engineering as an undergraduate, um, and uh, my being Chinese American, my parents wanted me to um, to go study some Chinese uh, at Beijing University after I finished my undergraduate. So uh, I was sent off to Beida, and I wasn't very excited about. The language classes, and I met I met a couple of Japanese tourists uh, after four weeks, and they said, "Let's go to Xinjiang." So we were planning to do that, and then there were floods, uh, so the railroads were the railway was was uh, delayed, um, and so they said, "Let's go to Tibet instead." And I was like, "Okay," <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. Um, and it, it was in 1993, so at that time, it was one of those rare windows when you actually didn't need a permit as a foreigner to buy a plane ticket. So I just went for a week and was to, to Hlasa, and, and she got in, was just absolutely fascinated by the landscape, and um, uh, I found the people super friendly and interesting, um, and it, it was a combination of sort of the, um, the very different landscape and culture that first got my attention, and um, and then I, after I finished a master's degree, I was doing an internship in Beijing uh for a year with the sustainable development office there um and I traveled to Tibet a couple more times as a tourist um and that's kind of what sparked my interest I was you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something on what I conceptualized at that time as sustainable development, uh, in China, I had the Chinese language skills, but I really didn't like living in Beijing. Um, it was sort of, you know, people were, were kind of rude, um, and it's polluted and, and all these sorts of things. So, uh, when I, uh, in my doctoral program, I, I, Uh, received a flask and I went to study at Tibet university and, and, um, that's kind of how that happened. So It was a very roundabout sort of way. I think a lot of people come to Tibet through, you know, the sort of Tibet movement, uh, in, in the nineties at that time or the, um, or an interest in Buddhism. But for me, it was like a sheer accident. (laughs) So, yeah,
0: so the book that we're talking about today is, as you put it um, early in the book, a critical analysis of modes of power that have produced the landscapes of struggle, of compromise, and of violence that afflict Tibet today. It looks at the production and transformation of the Tibetan landscape since 1950 um, and into the 21st century through careful attention to three key transformation. Transformations, each of which helps naturalize the belonging of Tibet to the PRC and is a focus for one part of the book. So those three trans I'll lay out the three transformations mm-hmm. and then um, maybe I'll ask you to talk a little bit about kind of how you came to this particular topic. Sure. The three transformations. The first one is the introduction of state farms and communes in the 1950s and continuing into the 1980s. And this is part one of the book. Part two of the book is about a project of economic development and market reforms in the 90s that allowed large numbers of Han Chinese migrants to come into Tibet. And you talk about um, their work cultivating vegetables, among other things, and we'll talk about that. And the third part of the book looks at urbanization and the expansion of the built environment in the 2000s. And you talk about housing projects and other related um, kind of ways of expanding the built environment. Of Lhasa and its environs. So how did you come to this particular topic? Why focus on this particular way of construing place and landscape um, in Tibet? And what, what brought you to this particular focus of your research?
1: Yeah, so the the project began really with that middle section, um, which was the focus of uh, of my dissertation, which it's, you know, that, that was sort of the starting point. And the way I got there was um, I had studied Tibetan at, at Tibet University for a year, and, um, you know, it's hard it, in the late 90s, and it, it's really hard not to notice that all economic activities are sort of dominated by Chinese migrants. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I noticed was that the vegetables are all sort of grown by, by these migrants. Um, and the, the puzzle that really kind of drove my dissertation was sort of, um, coming from a political ecology lens, which, you know, in, in, in one kind of iterations starts with the land user, right. And tries to understand what do people, uh, who, why do people use land the way they do? And to look at, um, sort of local, uh, you know, village level reasons why they do what they do, household level, and then kind of expand out in terms of scales of analysis and then backwards in time. So I was thinking along those lines and trying to understand why um, Chinese migrants uh, were were cultivating vegetables rather than the Tibetans. Um, and it became more of a puzzle as I came to realize that the um the migrants were making quite a lot of money from doing this in in most cases, um more so than um the, the Tibetan farmers. And then when I started to ask people, uh you know, they would always say some variation of well you know the chinese can work really hard and we can't or we don't like to work or we don't like to we can't work as hard as the chinese we don't like to get up that early in the morning and i was really interested in these sorts of two two sets of puzzles like first why aren't they behaving, you know, in, in what might be seen as an economically rational fashion? But also, why are they behaving in a way that kind of marginalizes Tibetans as a whole in the economy? Um, and then second, why do their explanations for what they were doing, um, echo state discourse when in other ways they were complaining vociferously about both migration and the state? So that was, I mean, that, that's sort of how it started. The broader, framing um in sort of in terms of these three transformations landscape came much later you know after the dissertation and after i had been working on this for for much longer um and it came partly I, i got interested in the state farms because there was this whole idea that you know tibetans just don't grow vegetables but i started to meet you know, hear about earlier attempts of um, cultivating vegetables on the state farms. And then I started to meet these really old, um, retired Tibetan workers on the farms who had kind of different narratives to tell about about their um, how they got to the farms in the first place and kind of how they conceptualized their role in bringing certain forms of modern agriculture into Tibet. Um, and then moving forward, as I started, as I was going back to to Halasa after, um, finishing, uh, graduate school, a lot of the villages that I had originally worked in were just sort of paved over, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they'd become these, uh, apartment blocks. And so I was sort of trying to follow that transformation too. Um, so that, that's kind of how the, the broader material, you know, and it kind of just struck me that there were these like very, um, material kinds of transformations that were going on that were also about transformations of subjectivity, um, but but the entry point was really the, the vegetables. Right.
0: Now the book is focused on Lhasa um, as you've described it already, and you talk early on in the book about your own methodology and your practice. You describe um, living in urban Lhasa and commuting to farms daily and to other places daily to interview farmers and families, workers, officials, Mm -hmm. scientists. And you talk about um, having conducted over 200, right, semi-structured interviews, Mm -hmm. informal conversations and observations over about a decade. So this is a really substantive kind of ethnography that you're bringing to bear on this research. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. You talk about, um, uh, early and late in the book, the importance of ethnography as a way to get at the production of state power and mm-hmm. to really to understand spatiality and, the, as you call it, the production of place. So mm-hmm. can you maybe um, talk about that a little bit? How, for you, does ethnography and does the particular kind of ethnography that you were doing help you get at that? And, and what are the kind of broader implications that you feel, if any, Um, of bringing this kind of methodology to bear and understanding this production of place in the context of state power?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I I guess, um, you know, I feel like the constraints that I faced as a foreign researcher in Tibet um, forced me to understand state power in a way through all the things I couldn't do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, insofar as ethnography is a method in which... um, you're not just sort of handing out surveys or having other people do surveys for you, but you yourself are sort of an, an instrument of the research and you're being transformed by the research um, was really I think uh, central to me understanding kind of how the state is sort of um, produced as a powerful entity that you know doesn't actually ontologically exist and so um just the ways in which people are constantly fearful of surveillance and start to surveil themselves um, – manifested for me in in like how I was thinking and how I was interacting with other people, the kind of constant um, considerations that went on in my mind about who to talk to, who not to talk to, how to talk to them, uh, and so forth. And so that, I think, over time, uh, what I experienced at first just as sort of sheer frustration at sort of not being able to go – live in a village, for example, um, not having permission to do this or that, um, staying home during celebrations because, you know, everyone says it's best just to stay out of trouble. Those sorts of things gradually, um, uh, rather than just being frustrating were eventually helpful for me to, to think about, you know, the conditions under which, um, and through which people make their their lives um, in an everyday way um, in Lhasa. So you know, and I think um, I mean the you know the ideas about ethnography are are uh, I think well rehearsed um, in a lot of different fields, but with Tibetan studies in particular, I mean if you look at um, the social science that's produced about Tibet within China, um, it's very problematic. Um, and even, and I think there's this idea that you can just go at least, you know, uh, the method that is often chosen is for people to just go and ask some pretty surface level questions. Um, and I've seen this with some, some other scholarship as well. And, and I just feel like in that particular, uh, atmosphere, political sort of configuration in particular, you you really just can't assume that, um, you know, a questionnaire is going to get at some of the interesting things that are going on or even reflect,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, the, 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 what people actually think or what they're actually doing. So, and then in terms of space, um, again, I mean, I think spatiality, you know, part of what I'm really interested in here is embodiment and how space is and places are produced in an embodied way. And I think that that requires observation, right? Mm-hmm. Walking with people, going with people, looking at where they're moving and positioning themselves in place. And that also, I think, is something that ethnography um, is suited for in a way that you know, analyzing a text or doing a quick interview just doesn't get at.
0: Right. And the structure of the book itself actually really beautifully, um, I think, gives bodily and textual and narrative shape to the importance of this process of walking with and um, what you found in some of these moments and brings us into some of these moments. So the chapters alternate with interludes that offer Mm -hmm. perspectives and moments, right, from Mm -hmm. your own um, research and experience into that and and that's there from the very beginning right when um we as we move into the book and we move into a celebration um in 2001 that led to lots of people basically immobilizing themselves in their homes and then this kind of opens out into the first chapter so can you talk about that structural um kind of decision how were you thinking about the design of the book um, in terms of the kind of work you wanted it to do and and why interludes like this
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I had a long struggle with my editor, uh, who at first didn't like the interludes at all. I wanted to, um, I wanted to kind of experiment with a way of conveying, I think, similar messages as I do in the more, in, in the chapters themselves. Um, but in a, like, try to experiment with writing in a different way. Um, uh, I'm not being very articulate here, but um, more sort of descriptive and humorous and um, sort of these, these vignettes that capture certain moments in a way that I, I explain in more theoretical terms in the chapters, but I think that really encapsulate the experience of living in Lhasa in the contemporary times.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're great. I mean, in one of them, you're actually telling us jokes, right? right. And so it's, it's a kind of um, kind of creation of a sort of narrative space that you can't really get in the typical prose style that we write as academic, um, right. you know, as, as academic. So I think that worked really wonderfully, okay. yeah. So the first one is, um, like I said, takes us into a celebration in 2001, which really winds up being... Um, a condition or a set of conditions for immobility, right? Mm -hmm. And it sort of brings us into um, this kind of environment of fear and self-surveillance and the importance of mobility or lack thereof to create or to prevent the creation of certain kinds of lived space. So Mm -hmm. this um, opens up into the first chapter. This looks very closely at forms of state power that shape everyday life in Tibet. And you talk about... Um, pilgrimage and circumambulation as forms of placemaking and as really being central to the production of Tibetan forms of sociality and community. Right? Mm-hmm. So s- these are also kind of, and you, and you talk about spatial techniques that constrain what's possible, and you talk specifically about the ways that mobility um, and restrictions on movement are manipulated, especially in times of celebration um to as a form of kind of state power. So, why don't we talk about that? Um can you talk a little bit about the importance of um your experience of and, and your arguments about restrictions on mobility here um and the way that that creates a kind of disciplining environment um in this context.
1: Um sure. So, yeah, I mean uh where to start? Um
0: you talk about picnicking. We can could, we could start with actually picnicking, um, which is, it sounds like a kind of weird um, moment to start with for listeners, Great. but like it's this kind of strange moment that opens up into a whole world of, um, you know, kind of restrictions that don't seem like they have to do with picnicking, um, but actually kind of manifest in these very seemingly innocuous everyday ways, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with
1: picnicking. Sure. Um, so, you know, a part of what I'm what I'm trying to get at with um, picnics and circumambulation uh, at the beginning of the chapter um, is that I think in the Tibetan studies literature, n- not so much with picnicking, but with circumambulation, there is this uh, mostly pilgrimage is written about in a very kind of religious context, and and w- I wanted to say that in addition to all of their sort of religious connotations, that they're also a way in which Tibetan space is produced. And this becomes particularly noticeable as the state puts more and more restrictions on precisely these ty- types of, um, of circumambulations. And so in Halasa in particular, um, you know, even though as an outside observer you go and you see people uh, uh, you know, going to circumambulate, um, there's, there's restrictions on who can and can't, um, uh, do the engage in those kinds of activities. And there's lots of fear about what kinds of, you know, who might be surveilling school children or school teachers or anyone who's a cadre or has a government job on those. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, As far as picnicking goes, again, it's, a, it's sort of certain times and places where um, very ordinary activities, which are, again, just productive of Tibetan sociality, of sociality in general, are banned. Um, and part of what I'm trying to get at in the chapter is that these are exceptional in the sense that they're extra legal. Um, they're not really possible in, like, if you look at Chinese law. And so I'm trying to Trying to think about well, um, what is this kind of space of exception that you know where there's there's actually a legal impossibility, and yet people and it's not written down, and yet people are subject subjected to it. What does that mean for Tibetans within the PRC? Um, And also, what does your kind of restricted movement in space mean for how you experience what state power is? So I'm drawing a lot on. on, on Foucault's ideas of disciplinary power as something that, you know, with, with the Panopticon is sort of the ca- classic example how arrangements of where people can and can't be in space and motion produces power um, and, and produces here a specifically disciplinary mode of power. Um, so again, there's there's really I mean, picnicking is one example. Another was um, uh, one year there was a kind of a drought and um, You know, crops were not doing well, and people were uh, trying to, you know, lighten it up a little bit and and sort of chasing each other around with buckets of water. Um, And then all of a sudden, that was banned too because it was seen as somehow, um, you know, somehow counter to the state, which is completely and utterly ridiculous. Um, But it was just another example of how really ordinary spaces and things to do get criminalized in a in a way that's that's outside of the scope of the actual law.
0: Right. I mean so. you talk about difficulties in just doing things that listeners might and I certainly did take for granted, right? Difficulties mm-hmm. in um, getting a passport.
1: Yeah. Uh, checking yeah, yeah, yeah. into
0: mm-hmm. a hotel if um, and as part of your identification you are identified as Tibetan. I mean these mm-hmm. things that like, you can't even stay in a hotel in Beijing. Um, right. th- this is pretty serious. And you talk about Um, this sort of discipline of everyday life with what you call a politics of fear and a fear Mm -hmm. of politics. Mm -hmm. So it's a setting of the stage early on in the book that's really powerful um, that really, I think, um, takes us into – the right now and the everyday. And then we move from there into the first part of the book, which contextualizes this um, in a history that brings us here. And this is this first moment that we talked about at the very beginning. So part one, which is soil, focuses on grain and vegetable agriculture in the 1950s, when the PRC first established control over Tibet, and as you put it, imposed a new socialist vision of the proper relationship between people And nature. So in chapter two, you bring us into state farms. Um, Now, these were key sites of state territorialization in the 1950s, um, and at first, they're founded because the PLA Army needs to house and feed its troops. So there's a food shortage, and you bring us into the establishment of Tibet's first two state farms in 1952. This was the July 1st state farm and the August 1st state farm. So um, can you just talk a little bit about the importance of this in terms of territorialization? Um, You talk about these farms as key sites of state incorporation and of territorialization. So what does that mean, and how did these farms contribute to this territorialization in this period?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, by territorialization, I'm I'm referring to the sort of um, naturalization of the idea of the boundaries of the PRC as a container for Tibetans. So uh, a form of, of state incorporation might be another way of, um, of thinking about it. Um, and that term is really meant in part to... Uh, kind of um, argue against the sort of realist no- notion of nation states as, as sort of natural, right? And, and to think about boundaries as constantly having to be made and remade, um, produced and secured. And so on a very sort of basic level, insofar as these farms were pretty much necessary to keep the soldiers there, um, they were key sites of, you know, territorialization of, of that first part Um, But also in terms of their success, I think, in recruiting Tibetans who, at least at that time, because of other difficulties in terms of class and gender that they were experiencing and that they were able to actually benefit in some ways from the farms um, and become kind of um, embedded in this project of creating a new society, um, it's... you know, it, it was a, a transformative process for those those people who who started on the farms. Many of whom, the early workers, many of whom became prominent. A lot there were a lot of county leaders and um, cadres of various types um, who were kind of you know really brought into the party state apparatus through the farms, um, and then the whole kind of discourse of and, and practice of um, sort of. You know, scientific agriculture, bringing machines, bringing new varieties of crops um, is that whole idea of sort of advanced production, um, raising uh, raising productivity is also very much part continues to be part of uh, the state's sort of um, uh, basis of its legitimacy. So in all those ways, I think it it was an important, very important moment in sort of securing that foothold into this broader process.
0: And you talk um, at some point in this chapter really, really interestingly about gender dimensions of this. So um, early on in the process of developing these state farms, Tibetan female workers volunteer to join the farms. right? And this is kind of one of many points um, along the stage of um, kind of reading the book where issues of gender and of what it means to be a woman in this context actually come up over and over again in really fascinating ways. Um, so why are women, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Why are women joining these farms and what's the broader implication for how we understand um, sort of gender, if at all, in this uh, stage of the story?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was surprised um, when I was meeting these older, uh, older workers, just how many of them were women. Um, and um, it became clear to me that um you know, in Tibetan society as it was, the state farms were a way for, uh, women who, who ended up there, um, in, in their various ways to get an education, um, to, um, have opportunities to learn things like how to drive a tractor or, you know, kind of leadership, um, eventually in the party, um, or even just, uh, Having better food that they could kind of take home to their parents who were who were living in in Lhasa in various ways at the time, um, and a lot of the women also talked about sort of and, I mean so sort of the nostalgia this sort of um, nostalgia for the Chinese in the fifties as opposed to you know how they acted later um, was was present. Uh, for both men and women, but women in particular talked about, you know, how the soldiers um, were—they were very kind, and they didn't try to take advantage of them. And sometimes, um, you know, Tibetan men would would sort of um, taunt them, um, whereas they didn't experience that from the Chinese soldiers. And this is again different from kind of how they feel about what's happening today with the party state and its restrictions on religious practice and so forth. And yet th- that experience is also kind of very real to them. So I, I sort of, you know, take that set of things and think about, and these are all, all of course, very poor women as well. So it's, it's sort of an intersection of class and, and, and gender um, mm-hmm. mobility and kind of uh, opportunities that were provided by the farm that they didn't have in in the society um at that time. And I sort of, I think about that as um, you know, in relation to actually what Charlene Makeley um has also written about the state incorporation in Amdo of incorporation having territorialization having a gendered dimension of sort of um emasculization in you know, in terms of the, the position of men and, and women within Tibetan society and how that's kind of changed at these particular sites of incorporation.
0: Now, as we move from this into the second part of the book, we move from soil To plastic, and we Mm move to part two, which looks at the production of the Lhasa landscape after decollectivization. So here, um, we have a context in which Han migrants were able to move into Lhasa to grow veggies in plastic greenhouses. There's a lot more going on. So Mm -hmm. after um, this really wonderful interlude on jokes, Mm -hmm. humor on page ninety six, that I just want to mark and sort of Mm -hmm. end in that, so that listeners go to that because it's hilarious and fabulous. um, We. You take us into a couple of chapters um, that explore this. And so Chapter 3 looks at what's happening since the early 1990s as Han migrants are being welcomed into Tibet as part of official development discourse. Now, Mm -hmm. they're sent mostly not to the richest or poorest villages, but to those in between. And you take us into some of those, and they're actually able to make more money cultivating veggies in Tibet um, than working at home. Now, you talk about the creation of um, an idea of a little Sichuan, Mm-hmm. Um, by sort of dominating the visible economic activities here, um, and you also talk about something that you mentioned um, earlier on, and I'll just kind of mark this and then move on so that we can um, talk about what comes next, which is that there you describe them being kind of resentful of what they see as a kind of unfair allocation of state resources to Tibet. So even though mm-hmm. they're they're making money there, there's also this discourse of well, it's unfair because there's mm-hmm. you know more resources going here than. Than elsewhere. And this brings us into a couple more chapters that look at um, kind of other um, concrete manifestations of this transformation um, in different ways and at at different scales. So the fourth chapter looks at the interactions of local Tibetans with these Han migrants who are renting their land for vegetable cultivation. And here's why I want to just kind of open it out and ask you um, to talk a little bit about this. Now, you talk about the households who rent land to Han migrants um, doing so willingly. And so maybe let's talk about that. Um, so can mm-hmm. you just um, bring us into this? Why are households renting their land to Han migrants? And and what's going on there um, that we need to understand in order to understand that choice?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I guess uh, I'm trying to say that there's uh, a whole set of different reasons why... Um, people, households end up doing this and that it can't really be reduced to a purely political economic one or a purely spatial one or a purely kind of cultural political one, but rather that these things are overdetermined and they kind of constitute each other. Um, But some of the rationales are – you know, partly there's there's issues of kind of land allocation and how property was alloc, use rights were allocated at um, mm-hmm. at decollectivization, where you have uh, each household having pretty small, disparate plots, um, kind of all around the village, and but for economies of scale, um, for greenhouse cultivation, you actually need kind of a concentrated area, and so you could imagine. <clears throat> households just perhaps themselves you know taking out contracts with other people in the households but but this was not really something that kind of um, seemed to be within the realm of the possible or something that people thought about very much. And I think it was partly, you know, my sense from these villages was that it was very, because the pr- the going market prices, the prices that Han migrants were willing to pay were much higher than what they were kind of comfortable paying each other. And so there was a sense that, well, we went, we can't really charge our neighbors that much, uh, but um, but these outside migrants are, are kind of willing to pay that much. And so let's just, you know, let's just go with that. So there's kind of a moral economy going on about what sorts of economic relations are proper with strangers versus people in your village. And so like their very outsideness kind of helps them actually consolidate land. And, and I saw that with other things too, with, um, sort of Tibetan, um, homeowners in the urban area renting out their, you know, carving out their courtyards or their you know bottom floors and and renting them out to to um, Chinese as well as well as in, in sort of hiring people for construction. So that's that's part of it. Um, They're all, but then there are also um, issues of market networks where you know people would kind of go and sell to certain people in in the. Um, in the retail, the wholesale and retail markets, which were also Chinese-dominated, so I think there was a, you know, there was a reason why these activities started with Chinese migrants in the first place, which I explored earlier. But and then once that sort of uh, takes hold, it's. There's all these reasons why it's hard for outsiders, in this case Tibetans, to break into that. But then there's also really, um, sorts of cultural politics kinds of reasons where Tibetans experience the greenhouses as very hot, which they are, you know, compared to outside. Um, and there's a sense that that kind of labor is appropriate for you know, the Chinese can do that, but but we don't do that. And so I, I try to explore this tension where, on the one hand, it seems like it's an echo of state discourse, and on the other, there was a certain way in which this was a making of a, dis- a cultural distinction, right? A, a making of, like, well, they don't understand that uh you can't take all that wealth with you, and we have different priorities, and we're just different people who do different kinds of things. And so there's sort of both this element of... um you know, ethnic distinction in a sort of um, valorizing kind of way, and at the same time in a self-deprecating sort of way, and I and I think those and um, both that and and the the sort of more political economic reasons are important, and there is also issues of spatiality, just like where people end up living um, the Chinese migrants always were trying to live very close to their greenhouses and these temporary shelters and they would move around because the the soil would you know sometimes you'd get um, fungal diseases or or you know the 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 land would um, not support continued production at such high levels and so they would move around and that 's again different from where the Tibetan village um was and, and sort of the um you know where people preferred to maintain their spaces of living and, and sociality. So all of these things kind of influence each other is, is what I try to say in this these couple of chapters.
0: Great. There's also um, a really interesting discussion here just to kind of pull on and follow through that thread of women's work and mm-hmm. gender. Right. Um, there's another um, really interesting discussion here, and I just want to mark that for listeners who are particularly interested in the gendered elements of this story. That here in Chapter Four, there's also some really interesting attentiveness to that. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the factors that comes into this conversation um, is the kind of the use, the building up of the integration of particular kinds of tropes, um, Mm -hmm. sort of discursive linguistic um, cultural tropes that are part of this conversation and part of what we need to understand as we understand the ways that, for example, um labor and the distinctiveness and distinctions in kinds of labor that are mapped onto and that help form these spaces are produced. Um, and this is really the focus of chapter five. So in chapter mm-hmm. five, you take us into two kind con- what you call idioms of development in Tibet. And these are two tropes. So I'm just gonna ask you to talk a little bit about Um, what you feel is most important about these tropes. The first trope is the trope of indolence, um, sort of laziness. So can you talk a little bit about that? So what what do we need to understand about indolence and the sort of discourse and trope of indolence as it's shaping what's happening here?
1: Yeah, this, I mean, this was important for me because it was kind of what brought me into this project, Um, this puzzle of why people talk about, you know, We don't work hard. We can't work as hard as the Han. We're really, um, we're really lazy. Um, and what I try to explore here is how this is sort of simultaneously, um, a form of, uh, sort of self critique, um, that, uh, you know, that, that kind of echoes state discourse that almost seems to take it for granted and sort of common sense, but also again, a way of maintaining a distinction, um, with, uh, with, with, China, with, um, uh, from, from the Han. And so, and I think what was, what becomes evident is that people mobilize this way of understanding themselves, um, in relationship to the broader project of development which casts them as um casts them as kind of lazy and, and and um unwilling unable to work. Um and so um you know what I'm what I'm trying to say here is that it's important to see it as a way in which people actually experience and negotiate um this this project of uh of development um mm-hmm. Um, speaking yeah, of sorry. work,
0: I'm sure um you can all hear that there's work happening outside, so <laughs> there's lots of gardening happening outside the buildings so if you hear a kind of low level um labor happening outside or sort of a low level audio um, of the <laughs> that's just weeds being whacked, folks right. so we'll just we'll just let that happen. Um, so indolence is one of the idioms that's used um and you 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 know you talk about also, Um, the ways that this helps us understand distinctive um, kind of uh, Tibetan Buddhist work ethic, right? Mm -hmm. And these sorts of ideas, among other things. But there's also another trope of being spoiled. Mm -hmm. And this takes on a couple of different forms in really interesting ways. So can you talk about that? What about this idea of being spoiled?
1: Sure, yeah. And I I do want to say one more thing that I uh, mentioned earlier. Yeah, just about indolence. I mean, I think, uh, again, part of what I'm trying to, map out is how these sort of cultural politics and political economy actually constitute each other. And so, you know, part of how people end up with this trope is because of these larger structural inequalities. But then this trope, while being on the one hand celebratory, also I think further feeds into or justifies, um, or, you know, is experienced as why people don't engage in, in, in vegetable farming, but other kinds of economic activities too. So it it almost ends up reinforcing the the political economy. And so, you know, I'm, I'm quite interested throughout the book in exploring how these things, you know, are, are actually related to each other and not sort of merely cultural, right. How, how, how cultural politics is can be kind of a material force too. As for being spoiled, um, yeah, I was uh, at first. Um, I heard the term in in the context of people talking about what too much chemical fertilizers do. So I was talking to people about you know, um, like in the two, early two thousands. Uh, Tibetans were not so happy about using a lot of chemical inputs but we're saying well now that we've had to do it for a while we have to keep using chemical fertilizers because the spoil the, the soil is spoiled um, but then that very same idea comes up when people talk about urbanization right and how um, when their children go to the city um, and sort of hang out they become spoiled and then they can't um, they can't work and um, Mm-hmm. and so it it's, a, it's and, and they talk about it in relationship to um, uh, prostitution for or sex work, for example, um, which they also see as something that is brought in um, uh, with uh, with um, uh, economic development, and they use the in conjunction with you know there's their trope of indolence too well we're spoiled so we can't um you know we can't uh, work that hard so i see these things as sort of all tying together uh, various forms of development in terms of agricultural inputs and urbanization um and sort of the market economy and state ed- state sponsored education um where it's a it's a it's a You know, it's sort of this recognition that these three sites are are all part of this process that they are trying to make sense of, negotiate, find better terms about. Um, So, you know, it's also, again, it's both sort of a, a, you know, one can be spoiled in a sort of um, pleasurable way into certain habits, but they're also, one recognizes that those habits are leading to certain forms of dependency that are that are problematic in the end. So I see it as a very powerful way in which people think about economic development.
0: Now, as we move from this to the next part of the book, we move from soil to concrete. Mm -hmm. And we move to the third part. So this focuses on the making of new built landscapes in the first decades of the, or the first decade, rather, of the 21st century. Now, you say that this intensified processes of state territorialization, and we see how that happens in the two chapters to come. But before we get to Chapter 6, um, we get to something we have to talk about, uh, which is Michael Jackson.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so there's
0: an interlude, which is this fabulous interlude that looks at an installation piece um, by an artist uh, in January 2004. This is an installation piece called Transplantation, um, and it involves Michael Jackson. And, I, and could you please explain to listeners how and why that is and what Michael Jackson has to do with this story about Lhasa?
1: Sure. Yeah, I love, I, I really love this, um, piece and it. it actually ends up being, uh, part of the, the cover as yeah. well. Um, and when I heard the artist, um, who was part of this Ganon Chunpei Artist Guild, uh, when I heard him explain, you know, what this, what this piece was about, I just, I kind of had to find a way to include it. And so he, you know, he has this, uh, this very pink picture of Michael Jackson. Um, and it's, uh, next to two Chinese new year figurines and it's in a little cage and it's kind of, there's some water on the ground. Um, and it's set against the potala and his, um, I won't, I won't uh, go through his entire explanation, but he's basically presenting Michael Jackson as sort of this metaphor for the experience of, of being a Halasa resident. Um, and he says, he explains that, you know, he first saw the poster of Michael Jackson when he was pretty young and, um, you know, people brought in posters from from Nepal, and uh, he said that people would kind of look at the posters of Michael Jackson and say, "Oh, what a beautiful girl!" You know, uh, because he had long hair, and so everyone thought he was a girl. And so he said this kind of indeterminacy of like, is he female, female or male, and also is he black or white, um, was kind of resonant with how it's what it's like to be a Lhasa resident, where you don't quite know what you are because things are changing so fast. Like are you Tibetan or Chinese or some sort of strange hybrid? That's, that's neither. Um, and then I think the other, um, there are many powerful things, but another thing he says is he's, he saw this video of, um, Michael Jackson, right? What, what he would have looked like had he never, you know, undergone plastic surgery. Um, and, and the artist says, well, he's actually quite good looking. And then you see like what what he, ended up looking like and um he says well this is kind of like what's happening to hlossa right we keep making these sort of cosmetic appearances for more development and what we've ended up with is this really kind of unpleasant hybrid thing right it's a hybridity that you don't they're not celebrating at all they're they're just sort of um uh kind of despairing of of this hybrid situation that they find themselves in and there there's a lot more to it which I won't go through but um you know it's it's really about this for him it captures this confusing state of being Tibetan today in contemporary China. And, and there's some, you know, there's some, in English, we say neither fish nor fowl. And in Tibetan, there's a term Ramaluk, which means neither goat nor sheep. Um, and he sort of says it kind of captures that sense of kind of confused identity. You know, like there was, there's been a lot of celebratory literature about hybridity, but this is a, a distinctly non-celebratory moment, which, which I think captured a, captures a lot of the, again, the, the lived experience of 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 being a resident of Lhasa and Tibet more generally today.
0: And you can actually see a lot of these themes um, playing out in the context of built housing, right? And housing mm-hmm. projects in the next right. chapter. So maybe this is a good um, time to just turn to that. So okay. can you talk a little bit about that? Like these concerns with um, hybridity and this sort of, Um, the the shifting um, home spaces and the shifting housing spaces that are coming out of this moment, which is very much a a focus of Chapter 6 as part of this urbanization. What's going on there? And for you, what's most important about um, what's happening in terms of the building of new private housing that kind of encapsulates um, some of what you've been talking about?
1: Mm -hmm. So urbanization has been um, a hugely of course, important thing throughout China. Um, on the one hand, we see a lot of, and there's been quite a lot of literature now, um, of basically land grabs, um, urbanization at the periphery, and how sort of county governments are making money of that, out of that. Real estate speculation is happening and people are losing their land. And on the other hand, the urban, I think it's fair to say, is increasingly seen as the sort of... Um, the site of modernity, of the future, of everything that's advanced and um, to be desired across China. And so that sort of thing is happening in Lhasa as well. But I think there are a couple of of key differences that I try to get to. One is just that this very, you know, I started to read about Raymond Williams and the country and the city and look at some of the Chinese literature. And then I started to look at the Tibetan terms and you see that the whole kind of cultural connotations of urban and rural just aren't really there in the Tibetan etymology and in the, the sort of Tibetan history where that's not the important distinction. Um, and there aren't the same sorts of um, yeah, imaginations um, on urban and rural throughout Tibetan cultural history, partly because that just wasn't the, the, the accepted, that, that wasn't the important uh, conceptual framework. So, uh, so I'm arguing in part that just the administrative, uh, grid that lays out this distinction is quite a new one. Uh, but then at the same time, we have these, um, this massive wave of, of, um, house building. So, you know, everyone I knew who had a government job was like doing drongshou, right? They were all, uh, fixing up their houses, um, and they were building these sort of quote unquote retirement houses, which often, you know, in a lot of cases, just they looked very out of place in the landscape. Um, if you look at the sort of housing brochures that were, were produced at the time, there these landscapes that are, um, and these housing forms that are totally alien to, um, to Tibetan cultural practices and, 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 um, uh and everything kind of around those um those plans. So both with the sort of lux not luxury but sort of middle class sort of private homes and with the homes that were being built for farmers who were resettled, they were using these plans that were very much imported from other places. Um and that people didn't really find, especially in the case of resettled farmers, they didn't find very Conducive to their everyday lives, and so um, I talk about one case where, um, in this resettlement, everyone is busy sort of moving their kitchen and their bathrooms to other parts, and and sort of building up walls inside the house um, that they've they've gotten in compensation for their farmland to make them sort of more familiar spaces and to be less sort of. Um, you know, they, they experience it as alien and they call them Chinese style houses. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's not just, and I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that urbanization isn't just like, you know, a technical matter of more people living together. Um, but it's really experienced, um, in a very, again, embodied spatial way as a, as, as quite alien, you know, and uh, also older people, um, really complained about sort of the squeezing together of people, um, into small spaces. Um, um, yeah, experiencing it as, as, you know, as one woman said, like, you know, she, she said, I don't know how they're going to move my corpse out of here when I die. That's right. <laughs> very sort of uh dark sort of humor. Um, but, you know, that that was kind of, um, again, an imposition of an alien way of living if, was how she was experiencing all this exp- uh, urbanization.
0: Now, before we get to the next chapter, which takes us into another um, side of this, right, or another mm-hmm. way to understand this, there is an interlude um, that takes us into um, the aftermath of 2008 Part 2, right? So there's mm-hmm. a moment that... Um, kind of breaks up, I think, really productively, really usefully, and really importantly, these two chapters that are on housing and reminds us of some of the larger context that's happening here. This is a context um, in the aftermath of two thousand eight, where you talk about, among other things, um, really this fear. Um, people in this um, interlude are being locked up because they're running away because they're afraid of the police. So they're, a bit, I mean, just the the kind of environment uh, to live in. And this kind is just—it's—it's really affecting, and it's really powerful to try to imagine this and try to kind of put yourself in this place as a reader. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about for you the importance of reminding us of this moment at this point in this story. Why is it important to take us into the aftermath of two thousand eight again, while we're in the process of thinking about and reading about um, this urbanization and these housing projects?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I, I put that there because all of these things are happening at the same time. And I think, you know, on the one hand, if we just read the news articles, then you only get the sorts of things in this interlude, right? It's the repression, it's the surveillance, it's the, um, armed, uh, soldiers at every intersection. And those things are, are, again, they're very real. They're very, um, they're very powerful. Um, and then, if you read you know what the Chinese government says it's doing, it's about providing gifts of housing to people and and these two things are happening simultaneously, and I see them as tied together um, very much by this kind of shifting form of power where you know, the state will give you certain things um, or say it's giving you certain things if it's actually taking land away from you in the case of land expropriation, but, you know, building a house. Um, but in exchange for that, you have to sort of, Ignore the surveillance, the repression, and you have to perform a certain loyalty. Otherwise, you become subjected to, you're, you're relegated to a state in which you neither receive a house, um, nor can you benefit from any of the other um, you know, sort of development gifts that the state is is trying to provide. And you get relegated to really a state of where you can be arrested, you can be killed with impunity. Um so I, I see them as really actually very much tied together, even though they seem radically different. They're happening at the same time and space.
0: Thank you. Uh, that's really useful. And it's also, um, it really nicely leads us into what's happening in the next chapter in so far as you're mentioning the the rubric of gifts and gifting. Mm-hmm. Now, Chapter 7 looks at a particular housing project. It looks at something called the Comfortable Housing Project, which was a massive development program aimed at building housing across Tibet's rural landscape. And one of the really interesting things that's happening conceptually and methodologically in this chapter is you're taking on this rubric of um, kind of building new houses as a gift Mm -hmm. and kind of saying, well, yeah, on one hand, like really, like, you know, we need to critically look at this. But at the same time, understanding this rhetoric of the gift is actually a really useful way methodologically of trying to understand what's going on here. And that is um, by using the idea of indebtedness engineering. So you take us into the importance of gifting as a way of in engineering indebtedness in the concept or in the context of this housing project. So could you talk a little bit about that gifting, indebtedness, engineering, and how that's playing out in the context of this housing project here?
1: Sure. And so the gift is important to me because it's a way in, well, first it's, it's very much seen, you can see it in state discourse. And it's, it was also a way for me into this, again, a, a way of trying to speak to, um, bigger public debates about Tibet where, you know, if you read, um, uh, Tibet movement, for example, literature, they'll say, oh, there's no, you know, there's no gift. That's completely ridiculous. Like, um, and I, and I, I'm trying to say, well, actually we, we actually take it seriously. We can see something, um, important going on. And part of it is that, um, you know, kind of relying on Marcel Most, right. He says a gift is both Present and poison. And it's not just that, you know, sometimes it's one or the other, but it's always some combination of both. Um, and then building on that, um, this idea that what a gift does is not only is it sort of about a relationship of reciprocity, but it's something where you need sort of two subjects or, um, you know, a, a giver and a receiver that has to recognize the giver as such. And so I see this uh, provision of um, housing, right? This kind of, uh, uh, this, which was a central part of the new socialist countryside in the Tibet autonomous region, unlike, you know, any other province um, in China as a way in which another way in reinforcing the relationship between us, you know, the state as Uh, an entity as a reified thing, um, and citizens, right? Uh, uh, Tibetan people who might not really want to be the state, but they kind of end up taking the housing. And so they kind of end up in this relationship that they're stuck with, even though, um, they don't, they're, they're quite unhappy in that relationship. And what they have to do instead is perform, loyalty, right, by not protesting, by saying certain things, by doing certain things. Um, and I, I think the other element of that, you know, when I was kind of first thinking about this, I, I was thinking about the housing crisis and foreclosures and mortgages, because that's what was happening in the U.S. But of course, that doesn't happen because in Tibet, because there's no rural housing market um, because of the unique property rights. And so what's really happening isn't... And people, and it confused me, because people were always talking about How worried they were about their debts. And there is, you know, there is some pressure from the banks, um, to try to get people to pay back loans. But, um, at the end of the day, the bank, you know, and this is clear in kind of government literature, the bank is actually never going to take, in today's context, your house back. And so it, it seems like what they were really talking about in terms of their debt was this other more, uh, other kind of debt, which is this, this, uh, you know, debt to a state. Um, that, again, they're very <laughs> unhappy with, and yet, nevertheless, now owe certain kinds of performances of loyalty to. Um, so, yeah, so it was, it was kind of productive in those ways. And, you know, again, what, what got me into this in the first place was um, that um, that so much housing was being built, but also that this was being called a new socialist countryside, right, where, you know, why is it that the government has decided that Houses are what people need when if you look at the national new socialist countryside, it's about education. It's about provision of health clinics and electrification. And th- those things happen too, but it's, it, there was very much this emphasis on a provision of a material house, um, which is, was, is quite unusual.
0: Now, this chapter also um, looks at other kinds of performances of loyalty and harmony, and specifically visual imagery and sort of visual performances. And we won't Mm -hmm. have time to really talk about that in detail, but again, I just want to mark that for listeners that there's throughout the book. um, So here in chapter seven, there's a special focus on visuality and the importance Mm -hmm. of visuality and visual imagery of development. that's in a way that's imbricated in this larger story, but throughout the book, if you read for it, there are all kinds of ways in which, um, people you're talking to are mentioning that, um, they've been directed to wear new clothing, Mm -hmm. no photographs are happening. And it's important to look a certain way to perform, um, a kind of, um, You know, to perform loyalty and perform harmony in in a certain way. And so that's a really important part of the book as well that we haven't had as much chance to talk about. But um, it's there, this um, contribution to visual studies and, and the way we understand visuality in this context is really important. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the book, um, Emily, there's also a discussion of um, a series of self-immolations between 2011 and 2013 and the imposition of state laws that are outlawing them. And you mm-hmm. talk about the state um, claiming the role in this context as an arbiter of death. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as a, since this is there at the end of the book, and this is what we're left with, um, I think it's important to also talk about this before we kind of conclude in the conversation about the book as well. Um, and I'd just like to kind of hit the ball back to you and just ask you to talk a little bit about this for you specifically. Um, what are the implications of this particular moment um, for the larger story that the book is telling? Yeah.
1: I mean, I, so I wrote about the, in an afterward um, about fire, about self-immolation because it, it, you know, it, seems impossible. One can't ignore it. Um, and yet it's very, I think very difficult to, um, to know how to write about, mm-hmm. right. Without, um, yeah. So uh, to me, it seems the, the way I can understand it right now is, um, an intensification. I, like, I don't, uh, of of the processes that are going on at least in terms of the state response where um you know on the one hand you have uh Tibetans being subject to all sorts of state violence um uh people being killed during protests and on the other hand you have people walking around with you have now you know army PAP walking around with fire extinguishers to try to prevent people from committing suicide through, uh, through self-immolation. And so it seems, you know, as I sort of uh, talk about sovereign power and, and um, different configurations or emphases on on sovereign or disciplinary or, or uh, biopower throughout the book, it seems like a further intensification of sovereign power where it is the state who gets to decide Um not only if you live, but also like if you die, it's not going to be your choice, right? It's the state which will let you die or not. Um, but also the way that that's been tied very directly to development provisions, I think, is, is a further int- intensification of the processes that I talked about in the um, the preceding chapter, the the um, um, about the new socialist countryside. Because again, what we we've seen new regulations where. You know, if anyone goes to, for example, mourn with the family of self-immolators, then um, they're cut off from development aid or villages or entire townships can be cut off from development aid. So you see it. I mean, there, it's, no, it's not hidden, right? It's a very direct sort of, you know, we'll give you the material goods, but you have to uphold your hand. End of the bargain, which is to be loyal, and one of the ways in which you be you're supposed to be loyal is to not you know not uh, protest in this way. Um, so you know, I I, I feel like self-inmolation is such a difficult thing to write about um, because of the very nature of the act, and I um, mm-hmm. but I felt like I could at least address how I see the state, how it comes out of a certain set of processes and how the response is... So far, an intensification of those processes. Um, so, I, I guess it's kind of a depressing way to end the book,
0: but um, but it's know. important. It's powerful <laughs> yeah. and it's important, and I think it's fitting um, for the structure as well. I mean, you take us into soil and plastic and concrete, and then we end with fire. And I, mm-hmm. I think this um, this is part an important part of the story, and reminding us that of the end, reminding us of that at the end, I think mm-hmm. is a is a very powerful statement. So, Emily, uh, there's a million things that we haven't talked about, right, that are in the book. um, There's a lot going on here. It's an extraordinarily rich study. Um, and we've really just scratched the surface. Um, but given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, I guess I'll just, I'll say
1: a couple of, uh, maybe humorous things about reactions to the (laughs) book. Um, so, you know, one is that just that territorialization is actually a key theme that I see tying together, uh, the, the book as a whole and, and, uh, I actually wanted to call it Territorializing Tibet um, Mm -hmm. and the editor very uh, intelligently said, you know, no way nobody will ever pick up a a, a title by that name they actually suggested though um, a title that uh, included the phrase socialist landscapes on the roof of the world, which I, I successfully fended off because I really didn't want to have that sort of tired trope in it, um, either. But so I, I just, uh, yeah, I ended up feeling <laughs> teeming, um, in part because I think, um, it, it, it actually ends up nicely think resonating it's a sort of a cultural um culturally appropriate or or resonant way of speaking about territorialization um insofar as the landscape of tibet itself um was seen as having been tamed it was conceptualized as a supine demoness that was then sort of tamed by Buddhism. Um, and at the same time, people tame themselves, right, become certain kinds of subjects through, uh, tame their egos through Buddhist practice. And so so I see it as um, a phrase that both speaks to landscapes and subjects and the relationship between those in a way that territorialization does too. But, uh, you know, one of the other, um, uh, one other reviewer who i won't uh mention by name also had uh you know complained about even having used the term territorialization in the book so i'm i'm very oh, glad wow. that out. <laughs> um yeah so and, and yeah uh mm-hmm. i asked i had another person who i think didn't didn't uh didn't read the book, but uh, objected <laughs> to the title, um, saying that you know Chinese development is not wanted in Tibet by Tibetans only Chinese. Uh, and this person actually wrote on Amazon: "The name of your book is a perfect example of China's political and social agenda in Tibet." So, oh
0: wow! <laughs> I well, maybe maybe try reading it. That's funny. a good thing to do. But, yeah. Anyway. It was- <laughs>
1: It was quite funny for me because, uh, you know, the editor had also been worried about the gift and that it might be seen in the wrong way. And I, you know, I I kind of want to I wanted to have that that sort of. Like oh well, what does she mean by that, and how do we how do we actually think about that? Um, But it only works if you read it, I guess.
0: Exactly. So let's just let's hope that people commenting on a book will read it, and just if we can hope anything for the future of books, um, we can hopefully hopefully look ahead to that and speaking of looking ahead um so what are you working on now now that the book is out and has won awards and congratulations it's a, it's a fabulous book and well deserving of all the honors that it's getting um what are you working on now what's currently inspiring you um well yeah thank you for that um
1: so i've been working for a while now on um this idea of environmentalism in tibet and so i'm trying to see if i can you know pull together a, a short book about that. I'm I'm really interested in this certain moment in the two thousands when a lot of Tibetans were sort of becoming environmentalists, um, forming environmental organizations, um, and sort of that moment in which transnational interest in biodiversity conservation and Chinese uh, China Chinese um environmental movement and Tibetans Came together around a project of Tibetan environmental protection. Uh, these same processes of sort of intensified surveillance and control after 2008 have have um, sort of greatly attenuated that uh, that moment. But um, but I'm I'm still sort sort of interested in. A how they came together and what um, sort of the, the genealogy of Tibetan environmental subjectivities and Tibetan environmentalism. Like what kinds of um, terms were they using? What is the significance of claiming that certain Buddhist terms in, in Tibetan culture always already was environmental? Um, mm-hmm. So so I'm trying to kind of write about about that Tibetan environmentalism. Yeah. Right.
0: Well, best of luck with that work, Um, Emily, and thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. It's really been a pleasure and it's just a fabulous book. So congratulations.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really
0: appreciate the time. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and for dealing with the gardening noise in the background. And we will see you next time.